1: Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas' Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy.
0: Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com. Slash Dale to support this podcast. Today I would like to talk about the joy of taking refuge. In Buddhism, at the beginning of retreats, often at the beginning even of a practice session, we do what is called taking refuge. It's done three times. It's often done rather automatically, without much heart or forethought. And we take refuge in three things. We take refuge in the Buddha, we take refuge in the Dharma, we take refuge in the Sangha. And then we say for the second time, I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the Dharma, I take refuge in the Sangha. And then, guess what, for the third time we say, I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the Dharma, and I take refuge in the Sangha. In thinking about what I wanted to talk about here today, uh, and partly in a conversation I had with Jim, who has instantaneously become a dear friend, Mm -hmm. I really wanted to find a way to sneak in joy and devotion in this uh, Buddhist establishment that we have here. And usually when I talk, I don't... Make any notes because I just talk out of my heart and off the top of my head. But when I talk to Buddhists, I think I have to make some notes because uh, I want to talk Buddhist and it's really not my first language. It's sort of like Buddhism is my second language. So, anyway, probably most of you have a rough idea what Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha are. And I'll mention what they are in an outer sense but if we really then begin to investigate together what the deeper meaning of buddha dharma and sangha are i think it can lead to a very deep quality of joy and of inspiration and of devotion many people when they're practicing begin practice there's a lot of enthusiasm Wow, meditation is this wonderful thing. Look at all that I'm finding out about myself. But after a few months or a few decades, depending on how stubborn you are, one begins to feel a little bit stale in one's practice. And practice begins to be something that you do out of habit or maybe you don't do out of habit. It becomes something that is done in a way that makes you feel calmer, you have a slightly more efficient personality structure, maybe you think you can make a little more money or find a slightly better grade of partners. But the notion of actually practicing as a way of finding liberation from suffering, of actually touching that place that is our intrinsic freedom, becomes lost because uh, practice is a long, often difficult process. One of my early teachers, Trungpa Rinpoche, said that until one becomes fully bored with practice, we haven't gotten very far. So what is taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha? Taking refuge means finding a place where you feel safe, protected and secure. In fact, in Hawaii, they used to have refuge temples, where if you did some horrible things, such as letting your shadow fall upon the king, which was a capital offense, if you could make it to the refuge temple before the guards or the soldiers got you, you would be free. So what we're talking about here is, is there a place of that freedom, a place of safety that we can find in our practice. So the Buddha, taking refuge in the Buddha, is taking refuge in an outer sense in the fact that this fellow Gotama Buddha existed a long time ago, 2,500 years ago. And he, though, became the living embodiment of awakeness or Awareness. So, what we're really taking refuge in is not this fellow, but we're taking refuge in awareness. We're taking refuge in the fact that you and I are intrinsically awake. And in fact, all of the spiritual traditions say that enlightenment isn't something that we find or that we create but it is in fact who we are already. We have just forgotten. But in this moment, Sunday morning here at a little after 11 o'clock, we are enlightened. We are awake. We may be identified with ego structure in a way that makes it difficult to experience that in a moment-to-moment way, but there is nothing to be found. And as long as we look outside trying to find that, we're really looking in the wrong direction. Here are some quotes from some of my favorite enlightened people. One fellow, Wei Wu Wei, said, what you are looking for is what is looking. Another uh, teacher, Swami Jainanda, said, be peaceful. I am everywhere. And my Guru Maharaji said, the best form in which to worship God is every form. Okay, so what, what these people are saying is that that sense of freedom is here right now. And we can begin to feel that awakeness in our body even at a cellular level. Right now, I'm talking, you're listening, we're here together. But is there also inwardly this sense of awakeness that you can feel vibrating in your body? There are really three qualities to the awake mind. If we're coming through the mind channel, the channel primarily of Buddhism and psychotherapy, for instance, The quality of awakeness, of awareness, is felt as emptiness, of spaciousness. That the mind is as vast as the sky. Weather will come flying through this part of sky that you're looking at, but it is only the weather, it is only the clouds, and you are the sky. If we come through awakeness through the body channel, awakeness is experienced as a sense of aliveness in the body. Right now, there is this vibrating sense of aliveness. And if we really begin to tune into that, that eventually we can feel it even outside of ourselves. We can feel it in inanimate objects as well as people that are around us. And if we come to this awakeness through the heart or this uh, quality of spirit, awakeness is experienced as presence. That there is that... Radiant presence in each of us that can eventually be experienced as joy. So there are practices to awaken these qualities. There is something called Guru Yoga in Tibetan Buddhism, where you imagine seated in front of you a form of the deity that appeals to you. There is the Buddha, there is Hanuman, there is Christ, there is the Mother. And this being appears to you as radiant golden light. Out of this being comes from her or his heart a ray of golden light that goes into you and purifies you of any remaining obscuration. And you then become a being also of the same substance, of exactly the same substance of radiant golden light. And then gradually you merge with this other being. So even though this is a visualization, it is also, in fact, fundamentally the nature of things as they are right now. Right now, you and I and the Buddha are made out of exactly the same substance of pure awareness. consciousness. There is nothing we can do, there's no amount of alcohol you can drink or drugs you can take or TV you can watch that will separate you from your identity as pure awareness. We can certainly forget it, we can certainly distract ourselves from it because in a way, and in fact this is what practice is about, in a way it is difficult and frightening to realize that we are awareness, because it means that who we thought we were has to die. That the fact that I think I'm separate from you, and I guess I was just told I have a PhD from Stanford, so that's who I am in a certain way. Uh, That I, even though I have those identities, that is not fundamentally who I am. I take refuge in the Buddha. For the second time, I take refuge in the Buddha. For the third time, I take refuge in the Buddha. So can we do that not in a, an automatic parenting way, but actually remembering that we are that? Which reminds me of a, a very lovely story. Maybe some of you have heard this story. It's making the rounds these days. But there is a young boy of about two or three years old, And his mother became pregnant with another child. She was about to go to the hospital to have her baby daughter. And before she went, the little boy said, when you come back from the hospital, can I I be alone with the baby and talk to her? And the mother said, okay, yeah, you can do that. She didn't quite know why, but she had her daughter. She came back from the hospital. And the brother was very persistent. I want to go in and talk to... The baby. So finally, the parents said okay, but they were a little concerned that maybe he was jealous or something and it would harm the baby. So they decided to uh, leave the door open a crack so they could hear what was going on. And the little boy came up very close to the baby and said, very, very quietly, I'm beginning to forget God. Can you help me remember? I take refuge in the Buddha okay moving on to the Dharma taking refuge in the Dharma the Dharma on the outer level is the body of the Buddha's teaching or the Christ teaching the the true teaching of all religions the Four Noble Truths the facts of the karma and the permanence and suffering all those things that we can read about in the books and taking refuge in the fact that there is this path that so many people have been upon and many, many people have trod to a point where they found a great deal of freedom. That's a wonderful thing to take refuge in. There is this this body of teaching, this body of truth. So uh, we're not just taking refuge in the Dharma. We're essentially taking refuge in the truth. And in fact, all religions are starting out by saying, I'm taking refuge in the fact there is freedom, I'm taking refuge in the truth, and we'll get to the sun in just a second. So basically, taking refuge in the Dharma has a deeper level of taking refuge in the fact that we're living in a lawful universe, that things are unfolding in a way that can be talked about in terms of there's karma, there's impermanence, there's dukkha, or suffering. But there's even a deeper level of taking refuge in the Dharma. That right now, in this moment, the Dharma is unfolding for each one of us. That whatever appears right in your face or in my face is your Dharma in that moment. That the absolutely perfect event The only possible event in your life that could be appearing now to lead you to the next step on your path to awakening is exactly what's happening. So that we can begin to let go of the self-improvement project. We can begin to let go of trying to fix things or manipulate things. Some of you in the back row are having a hard time doing that. (laughs) And I understand why when I look at the two of you. <laughs> the Prajna Paramita Sutra says there is neither tainted nor pure. One time, my friend Ramdas was with our teacher Maharaji, and Ramdas said, "Maharaji, I feel so impure." And Maharaji looked up Ramdas' sleeve and said. I don't see an impurity, Ramdas. So there is, in fact, no impurity. That is that is the Dharma. That there is this there is this teaching. There is this perfection that we can trust awareness itself. That just by being present to this moment, to this simple moment of us being together, is absolutely all that we need to move toward full awakening. So Rumi says things like, just this, don't turn away. Uh, Payment Chodron says, lean into your suffering. And in a way, that is the secret to practice. That when difficulties arrive, which we all know are certain to arise on our path, we have two choices. We can harden into aversion, or we can let those difficulties inspire us to open our hearts even more. To open to the difficulty and turn that into the gift that it truly is because it is showing us a place where we are making life difficult. Cancer does not cause suffering. One of my dearest and oldest students called two days ago and told me that she has just been diagnosed with cancer in her spine and in her liver. It's a very difficult diagnosis. Can she work with that in a way that it opens her heart, even though fear will arise? Cancer does not cause suffering. Resistance to cancer causes suffering. And if she can work with that resistance, can she open her heart to the the, the the depth, to the extent that it gives her immune system, her body, the greatest chance to heal? When we get a cut on our finger, we trust that the body will heal. We trust that eventually the skin will grow back together, the scalp will fall off and we'll be healed. Can we trust that also? That intrinsic movement toward healing in our hearts and in our minds, in our heart and mind. The heart is basically just the depth of the mind. We talk about it as the heart, but in Chinese, there's only a single word for heart and mind, sin, H-S-I-N. Heart is the depth of the mind. The mind is the surface of the heart. So can we trust that our heart will heal? Can we trust that our mind will heal if we take refuge in the Dharma, if we keep moving for being willing to be with what is appearing in front of us moment to moment. Can you actually begin to have a love affair with the Dharma? Uh, It's easy to have a love affair with a person, with God, uh, with music, with beauty, with art, but can we love the truth of the moment? Can we really uh, begin to say, Dharma, I love you, could feel that in your in your heart the way things are unfolding in your life to meet that with, with openness rather than with resistance so then finally there's taking refuge in the sangha and the sangha could be also called connectedness or love so that what we've done so far is we're taking refuge in, in uh, awareness we're taking refuge in truth now we're taking refuge in connectedness and if we think about it in those terms rather than these uh old polyworms worms, uh, worms <laughs> that's amazing. words of uh buddha dharma and sangha taking refuge in awareness taking refuge in truth taking refuge in connectedness the sangha in an outer sense are the people in this room we're practicing together we just sat together. And this this dharmic path is very difficult to do on your own. Almost impossible. So people come together in terms of being in a sangha. You go to a 12-step meeting. You come to a Sunday morning meditation. Not only is the sangha the people in this room, but at this moment, countless people are practicing all over the world. If you have a smartphone, there's something called... Insight timer where you can click onto this thing and see people. There's little dots of light all over the world where, where people are uh, having their timer on also, and you see who's meditating all around the world. <laughs> so that uh, there's this whole Sangha of people all over the planet, and their practice is in a very real sense supporting your practice. You're not practicing alone. So that we're taking refuge in the way that we are connected uh, when i mentioned my friend who was just diagnosed with cancer when i hear that when she called me and told me that then in a very natural way love compassion arises in my heart and goes out toward her we're loving each other and that connectedness in love supports our practice So Buddha said, don't believe what I'm telling you, investigate it yourself. But even though he's saying, don't believe, he is not saying, don't keep your heart open. That we can have faith, we can have faith in the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. We can have faith in refuge as an inner experience. Uh, once again, Trumpa, who is one of the most quotable people that was ever on the planet, I think, somebody asked him, What is it that we're really taking refuge in? And he said, Well, from yourself, of course. <laughs> so it's not faith in something outside of ourselves, it's really faith in this quality of. The, the awareness, the truth, the love that we each have. And when we begin to deepen this faith, then out of that comes joy. Out of that comes a certain joy in practice. So that we're not practicing because we're suffering, we're trying to make suffering go away, but there is a certain joyfulness. There's a joyfulness in being quiet. There's a joyfulness in movement. There's a joyfulness in being with other other people on the path. There are levels of devotion and levels of joy if you will. In Buddhism there are what are called the three turnings of the wheel: Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana, Buddhism. Hinayana is essentially vipassana practice, Mahayana is Zen practice, Vajrayana is Tibetan Buddhist practice. And beyond those three turnings is the non-practice of non-duality, of Dzogchen or Mahamudra or maha But if we're talking about this joy of practice, this sense of devotion to the Triple Gem, it goes through stages of development. So the first stage, the invocation stage of actually taking refuge, beginning to take refuge, is in Hoping for or asking for a relationship. I'm taking refuge in the Buddha, in the Dharma, in the Sangha. I don't really completely feel it right now, but I have some faith that it exists out there. Maybe I felt it in the past. So that I would, I'm, I'm taking refuge, hoping I'm beginning to feel that relationship. Hinayana or Theravada practice, moving on then to Mahayana practice, which brings in the quality of compassion. Mahayana means great vehicle, a vehicle big enough not just to get you or me across the ocean of suffering, but all beings. We're practicing for all beings. And it brings in the quality of heart, the heart of compassion. So in this level of taking refuge or practice itself, we're beginning to feel that relationship. There is a heartfelt relationship between us and the Buddha, and the Dharma, and the Sangha, and the Mother, and the Christ. Then coming to Vajrayana practice, where we begin to find out that that which we're in relationship to is not something outside. I am the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. It is not something separate at all. And then finally, non-dual, non-practice, the the teachings of Ramana Maharshi or Eckhart Tolle, Adyashanti, many other wonderful teachers that that which we're taking refuge in is the nature of everything. It's all of one taste, cancer and non-cancer, living and dying, happiness and sadness. There is a joy... There is a joy that goes beyond happiness and sadness. So that one can be sad, and that can be part of your path of Dharma. There's a difference between being sad and being lost in sadness. There's a difference between having cancer and being lost and having cancer. There is this joy that is inherent in every moment when we have that faith in being fully present. So right now there is this joy. I mean, I've been talking for about half an hour. There's a lot of ideas that maybe uh, you agree with or don't agree with or trying to remember. But beyond all of that mental activity, is there a joy? Is there a joy in this moment? Is there that, that God that that two- or three-year-old boy was trying to remember and talk to his, his uh, little baby sibling about it? So to the extent that we can practice with faith and with confidence, confidence in the triple gem, in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, then this joy will begin to arise. And one can make a practice out of that. In this moment, can one be 75% with the joy, this quiet joy, that is intrinsically part of each moment? And then there's 25% of you that's out here, we're in this room together, there's a whole bunch of people in the room, listening, talking, understanding. But most of our being is focused on that joy. And in fact, we're connected in that joy. And in fact, beyond that, we're one in that sense of joy. Ramana Maharshi said, Devotion is nothing more than knowing oneself." So Ulympeche said, devotion is unbroken receptivity to the truth. Modern neuroscience has been finding that our, our brains are programmed over many, many centuries to be like Teflon, to positive experience and Velcroed to negative experience. <laughs> Think about a long time ago, you were out there on the plane and you were being chased by a, a tiger. That one bad experience could ruin your day. So that if you go on a vacation, say, and you have 900 wonderful experiences, but you lost your wallet, you're really going to remember that one bad experience that we tend to really grab onto and identify with the one negative experience. But neuroscience has been finding that if you take a positive experience and amplify it and be with it for only 20 seconds, that it stays with you. It goes into the part of the brain that retains things, whereas usually the positive things just go sliding right through. So when you feel those moments of joy, can you be with it? Can you amplify it? Can you... Just hold on to it, not hold in a a squeezing way, but rest with it, embrace it for 20 seconds, 10 seconds. I think it's 10, 12 seconds, a certain amount of time. If you do that, it stays with you. Many of us focus on solving problems rather than on joy. Many of us have a career that is focused on solving problems. We get paid for solving problems. And so the mind gets in this rut of whatever appears, here's a problem to be solved, rather than resting in the joy that is possible in each moment. The Sioux Indian have a quote, sometimes I go about pitying myself. While well, all the time I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. Sometimes I go about pitying myself. Well, all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. We are carried by those great winds, those winds of joy, those winds of the inner Buddha Dharma and Saga, of awareness, truth, and connectedness. And finally, I'd like to read... A lovely poem by one of my favorite poets, Mary Oliver. Every day, in fact, the poem is called Mindful. Every day, I see or hear something that more or less kills me with delight, that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. It was what I was born for to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world, to instruct myself over and over in joy and acclamation. Nor am I talking about the exceptional, the fearful, the dreadful, the very extravagant. But of the ordinary, the common, the very drab, the, the daily presentations. O good scholar, I say to myself, how can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these, the untrimmable light of the world, the oceans shine, the prayers that are made out of grass. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the sun. And the joy that this taking refuge cultivates in each one of us.